trouble. When it comes to mass incarceration in the world, the United States is number one. And that's not a good thing. Two million people, two million people this day are in prisons and in jails. That's a 500% increase, 500% increase over the last 40 years. In case you're wondering, we are not a 500% more crime-ridden country. We are not a 500% more violent nation. Those kinds of statistics can't explain a 500% increase in incarceration. Instead, changes in sentencing laws and policies could help explain a 500% increase. One in nine men born in the United States can expect to serve time in prison or jail at some point in their life. If you're born black, that number jumps to one in three. States spend a little more than, or they spent a little more than $6 billion on incarceration in 1980. Today, they spend more, almost $60 billion. That's a tenfold increase. I could keep doing this. I could, I could keep sharing statistics to underscore the point that I believe we all somewhere inside of us know whether or not we choose to look and notice. And the truth is this. We have more people than ever serving longer sentences than ever, going back to prison more often than ever before. And depending on the skin color you are born with, those statistics look worse and worse. Now, I don't pretend to be a legal scholar. I haven't been to law school. I don't know anything about prison reform policy, not substantively enough to get up into a pulpit and pretend like I know the steps we need to take to make things better. That would be foolish of me to do. But I am a pastor. I'm a preacher. And I understand the power of human stories and human experiences. And the fact that policies and laws are frequently dictated and driven, whether consciously or not, by the way that we see each other. And the stories that we choose to hear. And the voices that we allow to cry out into the public square. And so today, I want us to take a look at two different people, two different prophets, two different stories. And they aren't exactly the same, but they are two people incarcerated, imprisoned, Offering something good, something redemptive as they cry out from the caged cell. And the question for us is, will we listen? And what will we do? The book of Jeremiah comes to us in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew Bible. He's one of the major prophets it's a lengthy book, not unlike Isaiah, and it's a collection of stories and sermons and prophecies written down largely by Jeremiah himself, the prophet, and his scribe Baruch. And in chapter 38, Jeremiah is offering a prophecy to the people of Jerusalem. And the powers in Jerusalem are either afraid and offended by his prophecy and call him a traitor, or... They're apathetic when he's punished as a result. We begin in chapter 38, verse 1, and it says this. Shephatiah, Matan's son, Gedaliah, Pashur's son, Jukal, Shelemiah's son, and Pashur, Malchiah's son, heard what Jeremiah had been telling the people. I practiced that verse a lot, my friends. Thank you. 
The Lord proclaims, Jeremiah says, the Lord proclaims, whoever stays in this city of Jerusalem will die by the sword, famine, and disease. But whoever surrenders to the Babylonians will live. Yes, their lives will be spared. The Lord proclaims, Jeremiah says, this, certainly, this city will certainly be handed over to the army of Babylon's king who will capture it. And then the officials said to the king, this man must be put to death. By saying such things, he is discouraging the few remaining troops left in the city as well as all the people. This man doesn't seek their welfare but their ruin. Jeremiah lives in the year 588, 587 BCE. That's when this time period takes place. This is during the second siege, right before the second siege of the Babylonian Empire upon the holy city of Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire was expanding their borders and, and, and conquering surrounding peoples, and they had attempted to conquer Jerusalem once, and they had failed. They had to retreat, but they come back a second time, and Jeremiah knows that this second time Babylon will succeed. And he couches this in the language of God, and he, and he makes clear, because again, let's not judge somebody who's living 2,500 years ago my 21st century ethics, right? He's trying to make sense for himself and for his people how something like this could happen to God's people. And what he discovers, what he arrives at, is that maybe this is exactly what God is up to. Maybe it is God's will that we be handed over to the Babylonians for a season of exile. Now, you can imagine why the officials in the royal court might take issue with this prophecy, right? You can understand why maybe they didn't find this to be a morale boost for the troops at the wall, but that's not what Jeremiah is interested in. Ultimately, the powers that be consider Jeremiah to be a traitor for declaring that the Babylonian conquest is not just a certainty, but a form of divine justice brought about by God. How could God desire for the nation, the, the people of God, to be handed over? See, what the, the leaders are not considering is, is they had begun to equate their own personal well-being, their own personal wealth, their own personal status, and the systems that kept them propped up as the well-being of the people. And the people were not well. Elsewhere in Jeremiah's prophecy, elsewhere in his book, God makes clear the reason you're being handed over is because the poor and the widow and the oppressed are being forgotten, are being pushed down, are not being cared for in the way that I've asked you to. So yes, I'm allowing you to be handed over because this is woefully broken and does not need to be maintained. Prophets, my friends, as we're continuing in this series called Radicals, as we consider the prophetic voices of ancient times and of today, prophets call us away from sustaining systems of sin, oppression, and injustice, and invite us into the unknown to discern God's will in the yet unseen. I chose several of those words very carefully. An exile season is a scary season. Why? I don't know what Babylon looks like. I don't know what Jerusalem looks like post-exile. I don't know what's going to happen to our temple. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But rather than keeping a society that is essentially dead on arrival on life support, God says, no, it's time for something different. It's time for something to change. Prophets call us away from sustaining systems of sin, oppression, and injustice, and instead invite us into the unknown to discern God's will in the yet unseen. 
Are we prepared for prophetic voices this morning, church? Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure. How far is it to the exit? The story continues in verse 5. King Zedekiah says, he's in your hands. He's responding to the court officials who come to him saying, this guy's a traitor. We have to kill him. King Zedekiah says, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing to stop you. Wow, real, real strong leadership there, King Zedekiah. What can I do? I'm just the king. you know. So they seized Jeremiah. They threw him into the cistern. It's like a deep well. The cistern of the royal prince Malchia. It's a well within the depth of the dungeon of the prison system there. Within the prison quarters, it says, and lowered him down by ropes. So deep, they couldn't even place him down. They got to lower him down by ropes. And then it says, now there wasn't any water in the cistern. This is a dry well, only mud. And Jeremiah began to sink into the mud. Towards the start of this service, we, we watched a, a clip from a man named Marlon Peterson. And if you're watching this after the fact and you're just seeing the sermon portion, I would, I would commend to you to, to witness a, a TED Talk by a man named Marlon Peterson. He talked about, in the opening clip, about how he, was, um, he considered himself to be trash. And then he talked about his uh, experience as a, a, someone whose lineage is from Trinidad and Tobago. He was born the, the son of uh, immigrants from Trinidad. And he talked about how uh, the island of Trinidad was littered with oil drums that became the steel pan drum of Caribbean culture and music. Marlon Peterson wrote a book called Bird Uncaged that has been on my nightstand this past week. It's a memoir that I would commend to you to read. It's a powerful story of how uh, Marlon ended up incarcerated, the work that he was able to do while incarcerated, and the work that the Holy Spirit was able to do through him and through his fellow inmates, and now the work that he feels called to on the other side as he says himself he is decarcerated. So I want to share a little bit of Marlon's story with you this morning. And a little bit of what he shares in the book, but again, I cannot emphasize enough, it's, a, it's not a lengthy book, but it's well worth your read. I would encourage everyone here to find it. It's on Kindle, it's on hard copy, it's on Audible, however you want it. It's worth listening. He grew up in New York City, the son of immigrants of Trinidad. And he said, at 16, 17, and 18, most of us boys, fellow Trinidad products, were confused Scared of standing out, in need of attention, hiding pain, and burying joy. This group of friends that he references, they would end up attempting a robbery that would go wrong. Marlin was supposed to be a lookout that day. He, he makes note that he only had one contact in, but he thought he could still do a good enough job. He was across the street and meant to be watching as the armed robbery took place. He said he didn't have a weapon on him, and then suddenly things went sideways. Four people were shot, two were killed. And though he wasn't personally in possession of a weapon, even though all he was was the lookout that had to watch as things went wrong, he would end up arrested. He said this, I told the police I went with my cohorts on the robbery but didn't do anything. That confession, along with an eyewitness who said I cursed her out while inside the store I was positioned at, was enough to get me indicted on a range of charges from first-degree murder to criminal weapons possession. Right before arraignment, my lawyer, who was actually a family friend, a divorce attorney, way out of his depth, my lawyer said that I was facing the death penalty. 
but that I shouldn't worry about that because the Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau was against the death penalty, so life without parole is the worst I could get. Can you imagine being 20 years old and being told that life without parole was the worst that you could get? He ended up going to jail during his time of arraignment and sentencing. He said, jails are designed to disorient, like being dropped into a deep well with only mud at the bottom slowly eating you up. Jails are designed to disorient. Your relationship to time and space and diet alters dramatically. Time is replaced with waiting until, until the count is cleared, until the bus gets here, until you hear your name or jail number called 34999221417, until they open your cell, until they close your cell, until the food gets here, until you can shower. Jeremiah and Marlon end up in the cistern for very different reasons, but both are being slowly swallowed up by the mud. Jeremiah's story continues in verse 7. It says, Abedmelech, the Cushite, a court official in the royal palace. Oh, we know what these guys do, right? Another one of those court officials. Got word that they had thrown Jeremiah into the cistern. And since the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate, Abedmelech left the palace and said to the king, My master, the king, these men have made a terrible mistake. Whoa in treating the prophet Jeremiah the way they have. They have thrown him into the cistern where he will die of starvation, for there's no bread left in the city. Remember, the systems are broken. There's no bread left in the city. He will die. Jeremiah ends up with a surprising advocate in Abedmelech, who calls the king out of that frustratingly disturbing allure of apathy. And before we think too little of King Zedekiah, could we recognize that frequently we are in that exact same position? Out of sight, out of mind. Abedmelech refuses to allow that to happen. Marlin understood what it was like to be in a cistern and be wondering where the bread was coming from. He said early on, on the first day of his jail time, he said, most often, though, the officers ignored me. This was more than them offering him insults or other things. He said, most often the officers ignored me. This is what accountability for harm can look like too, he says. This is the form of accountability we as a society are most comfortable with and have been conditioned to believe is repair. This is what rehabilitation looks like from the inside, and this was only day one of the 3,722 days I'd eventually serve, suffer through and survive. Marlon learned very quickly what it was like to be seen as something less than, something not even worth cursing at or, or, or abusing, but something simply to be forgotten. My friends, when we see each other, when we see people who have committed perhaps even violent crimes, when we see prisoners, do we see problems worthy of punishment? or people worthy of redemption? Or do we see anything at all? Part of my conviction in reading Bird Uncaged is recognizing how much I am like King Zedekiah, how much I am comfortable sitting in apathy while there are people in cisterns whom I can't hear, whom I can't see. 
And I have to ask myself the question, do I see problems worthy of punishment? Do I see people worthy of redemption? Or do I even see anything at all? Abedmelech sees. In verse 10, it continues, Then the king commanded Abedmelech the Cushite, Take 30 men from here and take Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Abedmelech took the men and returned to the palace to an underground supply room where he found some old rags and scrap of clothing. Imagine the old rags and scraps of clothing you find in the underground supply room in a prison facility. Right? I mean, I've got the kitchen drawer in my kitchen full of the rags that you throw on the ground when someone spills something, and I pour extra bleach in the washing machine when I wash those. I can't imagine the scraps of cloth they were working with. Abedmelech lowered them down the cistern by the ropes and called to Jeremiah, put these old rags and scraps of clothing under your arms and hold on to the ropes. And when Jeremiah did this, they pulled him up by the ropes and got him out of the cistern. After that, Jeremiah remained in the prison quarters. Abedmelech is a royal court person, but he's, he's a surprising figure. He's essentially a person of African descent who is also a eunuch who would have been charged with keeping watch and patrol over the king's harem. This is not the kind of person that you would expect to show up in a salvific way for God's prophet, and yet here he does. And not just that, it's a surprising person who then takes these dirty, rotten rags and pieces of cloth and turns them into Jeremiah's salvation. What an image of redemption. Marlon was first sentenced to serve in a supermax prison. Remember, this was the 20-year-old who didn't have a weapon on him, who was just watching from across the street. Street Was sentenced to a supermax prison, the, the worst of the worst. And, and then fairly early on in his sentence, he was able to transition down to max B, which is the notch just below. And after he was transferred to that security facility, he got a phone call from his younger brother, Dev, who said, remember Nadia from the block? This was a girl he had grown up with who is now a woman. He said, well, she's a teacher now, his brother said, and she wants to get in touch with you to help her out with something. And that help her out with something would end up being something called the Young Scholars Program. Marlon began serving as a pen pal of sorts with, a, a, at first, a classroom, but what would eventually become 50 students in Nadia's school where he was sharing his experiences and the kids were sharing with him. And he would even submit lesson plans, individualized lesson plans for each of these 50 students for what they would call um, Character Lesson Friday. But then through some additional prison transfers, it proved unsustainable. And after about a year, the Young Scholars Program had to come to an end. But luckily for us, Marlon's fire for redemption was lit. It was soon after that he would end up meeting Dr. Larry Mamiya, a Hawaiian professor at Vassar College in New York, who began bringing students to Greenhaven Prison in 1979. That's a state prison facility in New York. Greenhaven was the home of the Greenhaven Think Tank. This is what Dr. Mamiya put together. It was a group full of uh, incarcerated men who, who served as a, a think tank of, of reimagining what could be possible in the prison system. As Marlon says, these guys are the reasons why anti-violence programs in prisons exist. They are responsible for the, quote, seven neighborhood study, which exposed the fact that the majority of people in New York State prisons were from seven neighborhoods in New York City. Broken systems. 
The Greenhaven think tank essentially pioneered the work of incarcerated men providing peer counseling for parole reviews and reentry. The program initiated by Dr. Mamiya and led by the inmates of Greenhaven eventually expanded to Otisville State Prison where Marlon found himself after his Young Scholars program came to an abrupt end. At Otisville, Marlon became a leader and sought to bring redemption into a system devoted to a broken version of rehabilitation. He says this, I was given space to create programming that I thought would improve the services offered to the men who shuffled through the doors. The first thing I wanted to do was to return the Vassar prison program to its genesis as a peer-led program and not the model that had developed into students coming into the classroom to ask the incarcerated men questions about their existence without much reciprocity. The students were not smarter or more cultured than the incarcerated men, nor were the guys locked up any better than the students. I saw value in, in reestablishing an environment where the interchange of views, supports, and resources was prioritized over the freeness and whiteness of the Vassar students. He goes on to say that in 2006, Matt Bourne, a fellow inmate of his, and I conjured up the idea of Otisville and Vassar, two communities bridging the gap, BTG, as they called it. The overarching goal was for everyone but especially the incarcerated men to stand in their value and self-worth. And here's the crazy thing is it worked. It worked so well that it got them on the radar of the Department of Correctional Services. He says this, BTG had gotten some buzz in the central office of the Department of Correctional Services, and they sent two administrators to sit in on the class. Wow. Matt debriefed with the two administrators their only critique was that an inmate was running the class. Marlon would continue to leave BTG and then go on to start another nonprofit shortly before his release, a mentoring program initially formed by fellow inmates that now serves underprivileged youth in multiple locations, including some of those seven neighborhoods in New York City. From rags to salvation, indeed. In verse 14, Jeremiah's story continues. King Zedekiah ordered that the prophet Jeremiah be brought to him at the third entrance of the Lord's temple, where the king said to Jeremiah, I want to ask you something, and don't hide anything from me. Jeremiah says, <laughs> Jeremiah replies, if I do, you'll kill me. And if I tell you what to do, you won't listen to me. Will we kill the messenger? Or will we listen to what needs to happen next? I wonder. In Uncaged Bird, Marlon continues to say that as a result of his experience in the prison system and to see what is possible when we invest in redemption and not simply rehabilitation or some broken version of it. On the other side, he has become a committed prison abolitionist. If you don't know what that means, that means someone who sees the potential of a world without prison cells. And if that sounds like a radical idea, good, it is. And if that sounds like an uncomfortable idea, I would say good, lean in. Marlon says, I get why abolition seems impractical to many and unsustainable to others. Fear. I don't know if I live in a terrified nation, but I know that this nation is terrified of people like me, which makes people like me terrified of this nation. 
All of this fear suffocates space for love. Love for others makes you want to undo behaviors that hurt. Just as Marlon had to undo the behaviors that got him into the cistern. He says, until that undoing occurs, abolition will remain an impractical ideal for America. Prison abolition is a radical idea, and so is the kingdom of God. Until we can envision a world where stories like Marlin's don't have to be told, until we can envision a world where the cisterns have more water than mud and fewer people inside, until we can envision a world where people are willing to step away from the broken systems and, and maintenance mode and instead step into something new, something different yet unseen, until we can imagine a nation and a world without prison cells we've not fully imagined the kingdom of God. When heaven meets earth, there is not a correctional facility. Until we, can until we can invest in incarcerated people as human beings, then we're not fully investing in the kingdom of God. Once every bar has been broken and every prisoner freed, once that seemingly impossible dream is made real, then the kingdom of God will be at hand. It's a radical idea. It's a prophetic voice standing at the third door of the temple Will we kill him? Will we listen? And what do we do? I'm not a policy expert. I'm not a legal scholar. Save your emails on those fronts. I'm not going to argue those points today. All I'm going to ask us to do is to listen to a human story and to see a living, breathing child of God and consider the implications that that may have for our lives. I'm going to ask us once again to go to the third door of the temple and to hear Marlon tell us what to do for himself. Above all else, what, that, what building that program taught me was that when we, when we sow, when we invest in the humanity of people, no matter where they're at, we can reap amazing rewards. In this latest era of criminal justice reform, I often question and wonder why why is it that so many believe that only those who have been convicted of nonviolent drug offenses merit empathy and recognize humanity? Criminal justice reform is human justice. Am I not human? When we invest in resources that amplify the relevancy of people in communities like Laventee or parts of Brooklyn or a ghetto near you, we can literally create the communities that we want. We can do better. We can do better than investing solely in law enforcement as a resource because they don't give us a sense of relevancy that is at the core of why so many of us do so many harmful things in the pursuit of mattering. See, gun violence is just a visible display of a lot of underlying traumas. When we invest in the redemptive value of relevancy, we can render a return of both personal responsibility and healing. That's the people work I care about because people work. Family, I'm asking you to do the hard work, the difficult work, the churning work of bestowing undeserved kindness upon those whom we can relegate as garbage, who we can disregard and discard easily. I'm asking myself. Over the past two months, I've lost two friends to gun violence, both innocent bystanders. One was caught in a drive-by while walking home. The other was sitting in a cafe while eating breakfast 
while on vacation in Miami. I'm asking myself to see the redemptive value of relevancy in the people that murdered them, because the hard work of seeing the value in me. I'm pushing us to challenge our own capacity to fully experience our humanity by seeing, by understanding the full biography of people who we can easily choose not to see. Because heroes are waiting to be recognized and music is waiting to be made. Thank you. <laughs>